0: Today we are in Acts chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 9 and um, let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you and Lord, we know that we love you because you first loved us. And so Lord, we thank you for that reality and we thank you God that you are so interested in our lives that you tell us that you know the number of hairs on each of our heads that your thoughts for us are are more than the sands and they're not thoughts of evil but thoughts of good to give us a future and a hope and so Lord I pray today that you would just give us further insight into what it looks like for you to move us and lead us as your people And so we give you this time this morning in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that I have struggled with in my Christian life is knowing in certain situations or in opportunities, if God is the one that is really leading me or am I just, you know, leading myself. And I would venture to say that probably a lot of you have struggled with that as well in your life, because the number one question that uh, I've received in the 38 years that I have been in, in ministry has been this question, and if you talk to most pastors, they'll tell you this is the question they get asked the most, and it's this question, how can I know God's will for my life? But it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? When you are moving in in your life and and to know that God is, is with you and God is leading you. Isn't that amazing when you have those times, like there's a confidence that I know God is in this. And the beautiful thing about the Christian life is that God wants to move and lead his people. He wants to uh, move and lead us in every single facet. He wants us to be governed and led by him in every single facet of our lives. And this is one of the things that I love about Acts chapter 8 because it gives us some great insight into how God moves and leads his people. And we looked at the first one last week, where we saw how God moved his people, the early church, by shaking them out of their comfort zones. And he did that by allowing persecution, a heavy persecution, to come upon them. And we saw the results of that persecution in verse 1 and in verse 4. Look at it in our text. It says, and they were all scattered. Everybody say scattered. They were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, and then look at verse 4, and therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So God allowed the persecution to get the church moving in the direction that they were supposed to go. Because the mission that God, that Jesus had given to the church was that they were to take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was their mission. But up until this point, they had only shared the gospel in Jerusalem. And the work of God was, was really singled out. It was centered in Jerusalem. And, 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 and the rest of the mission hadn't been fully you know, accomplished yet. And so in order to get them moving on the mission, and this is about three to four years into the life of the early church, God allows this persecution to come upon them. And that's what God will often do in our lives. To get us where he wants us to go is he will allow your life for you to be your comfort zone to be shaken up god will stir things up in order to send you out to send you in the direction that he wants you to go and so this is what we said last week whenever god is shaking up our lives the question that we need to ask is not god why is this happening Why is this happening to me? The question that we need to ask is, Lord, what are you wanting to do in me and with me and through me in this situation? So last week in the midst of the shakeup, we saw that Philip, that young deacon, went down to Samaria. And this was huge because the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't really like each other. They didn't get along. And so for, for somebody like Philip to enter into Samaria, it'd be kind of like, you know, somebody moving into rival gang territory. I mean, that was kind of the, 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 the tension was so thick about within these two groups. And I don't have time to go into the whole uh, reason for the tension, but I'll just put it this way really simply is that the Samaritans were half Greek or half Gentile and half Jew. So they were considered to be half breeds. And because of that mixture, the Orthodox Jews didn't accept them. And so because of that, the Samaritans ended up building Their own place to worship rather than going to Jerusalem to worship. And that only furthered the animosity uh, amongst the Jewish people. And so Philip goes down, and this was really an insight that we pointed out that Philip was this guy who was just willing to go anywhere to be used by God. And he goes to Samaria and God does this incredible work there, and people are getting saved. Revival is breaking out. And Today, we're going to see the second way that God often moves and leads his people is he has us respond to a need, and we're going to see that. But today, we're going to be looking at a larger portion of scripture, and I want to begin by reading verses 9 through 13, if you follow along with me. It says, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least of them to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs and the wonders that were done. Pause there and give me your attention. So God is moving in this radical way in Samaria. Many people are are believing, putting their faith in Jesus and getting baptized. And then there's this interesting guy named Simon who also gets converted to Jesus. And we're told in the text that Simon was previously a sorcerer. He comes to Samaria and kind of mixes this a mixture of Judaism with the occult. And because there seems to be some kind of power behind what he was doing, many people began to follow him. I mean, they thought that this guy was something. There was a power attached, and the people were mesmerized by him. And we're told in verse 9 that Simon was a self-promoter. He claimed to be somebody great. We could say that Simon was a, a braggart, a boaster. He was obsessed with his own greatness and he made these mighty claims about his own person and his own power. It reminds me, some of you are old enough to remember Muhammad Ali. Remember the great boxer Muhammad Ali and, and what was his thing? What did he always say? I'm the greatest. All the time. And for a long time he was. I mean, he was the greatest boxer and he was, he was a, a phenom. But it was interesting. It, one of, this is a true story. He was on an airplane once and um, the pilot, you know, puts on the thing that everybody needs to put on their seatbelts. And so uh, Muhammad Ali doesn't put on a seatbelt. And the flight attendant comes up to him and says, you know, Mr. Ali, you, sorry, you need to put on your seatbelt. And he says, Superman, because that's what he called himself. No, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> And the flight attendant fired right back at him. She was a sharp gal. She said, Superman don't need no airplane. And, uh... <laughs> but Simon was a lot like that. He was this boaster, you know, I'm, I'm the greatest. I'm this great guy. But when Philip arrives in Samaria and starts preaching Jesus, people start getting saved. And so we see this incredible contrast between Philip and Simon. These two men, and it really gives us a great insight into that which is of God and that which is not of God, that Philip preached Christ. Simon preached himself. Philip pointed people to Jesus and the redemption that was offered through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Simon dazzled people with signs and wonders in order to point people to himself and gather his own attention. But the people here in Samaria noticed the difference. And those who had previously been astonished by Simon and his sorceries now believed in the message that Peter was preaching. And they embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they believed in the Lord. And they evidenced that by getting baptized. But then verse 13 tells us that Simon also believed. And that he got baptized. And he starts following Philip around. I mean, he's just mesmerized by Philip and what is going on. And the question as you go through this text that many people have is, was Simon's conversion a real conversion? And I'm going to attempt to answer that question as we move on in just a few minutes but but let's continue let's let's see so we see god is moving and working in samaria in verse 14 it says now when the apostles who were at jerusalem heard that samaria had received the word of god they sent peter and john to them who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the holy spirit now listen to this language closely in verse 16 it says for as yet he had fallen Upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, this is very interesting. Give me your attention. The apostles are in Jerusalem. They hear what's going on down in Samaria, how all these people are getting saved. And so the apostles decide, hey, let's send Peter and John down there. And here's the reason, it tells us in verse 16, it's because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. Now, this is the experience that Jesus described in Acts chapter one. When he told his disciples after his resurrection. He said, you know, John baptized you with water, but there's a day coming where I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Jerusalem and wait. And he uses that same language for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And then he says this, and the Holy Spirit's going to empower you. That's going to be the purpose of this Holy Spirit coming upon them is that he's going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is what we refer to Jesus referred to it as this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you recall we talked about this that in john chapter 14 before jesus went to the cross he's with his disciples and he says you know i'm not going to uh, i'm not going to leave you guys orphans i'm going to send the holy spirit to you and he says right now the holy spirit is with you but then he says this but he shall be in you he uses two different greek words there to describe two different experiences of the holy spirit in a person's life He was with them because he was with Jesus. He was in Jesus. But Jesus said, there's a day coming when the Holy Spirit's going to come in you. He's going to indwell your life. That happens to the disciples in John chapter 20. After the resurrection, you know, Jesus had to die on the cross and rise again from the dead for anybody to be born again right? He had to do that in order for, for salvation to happen. So after the resurrection, John 20, Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears to these guys. They see him. They believe that he's risen. And then he says to them, he breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Spirit. It's at that moment that those guys were born again and the Holy Spirit came to indwell their lives. And that's what happens to anybody that puts their faith in Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit comes to live in their hearts, to dwell in them through faith, Paul put it that way. But then Jesus says to his disciples, now I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to wait for a third experience of the Holy Spirit. I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you He's going to baptize you, and the purpose of that is to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The the key thing in that is that Jesus was saying, in order for you to carry out the mission, you can't do that in your strength. You need a power, a supernatural power, that's only going to come through the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes I will ask people, I'll say, hey, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they'll answer this way. Yeah, you baptized me down at the beach. (laughs) Or you baptized me at the church in in the pool where the water was really warm, you know. That's water baptism. That's what we do in order to declare our faith in Jesus. Jesus said that, Water baptism is an evidence for our salvation. But Jesus said there's a second baptism and it's it's not with water, but it's with the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing that we see here in our text is that those in Samaria had only be baptized. Look at verse 16 again. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. So they had been baptized in water and they had received the baptism for salvation, but they had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what can we learn from this? Well, this means that there is a work of the Holy Spirit that went beyond salvation. And I point this out because there are those in the church today that actually teach that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit when you get saved. And there is no need for a second work or a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's what we see in the book of Acts contradicts that teaching. I mean, consider As I just said, the apostles get saved in Acts 20, but they get baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The Samaritans here, they get saved at the preaching of Philip, but then there's a need for Peter and John to come down to lay hands on them so that they can be baptized, empowered, have the Holy Spirit come upon them to receive that baptism. We'll see in the life of Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 9, he gets saved on the road to Damascus, but then God sends Ananias to come and pray for him that he might receive the filling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we get to Acts chapter 19, we're going to see that Paul meets these guys that, that he looks at, and, and because of everything he sees about them, he assumes they are believers, and so he asks this question. In fact, the text calls them disciples, And he says, have you guys, he he looks at them, and maybe you've experienced this. He looks at them and just says, okay, these guys are disciples, but there's something missing in their life. So he asks this question. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? He's wondering, have you guys been baptized with the Holy Spirit? That's what he was asking. Have you received that baptism of the Holy Spirit? And all of that just gives us insight that there is a need for that second work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will say this. We'll see in Acts chapter 10 that there is a group of people, Cornelius and his family, that they get saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit right at the same time. So that can happen. But we see oftentimes in the book of Acts, there's this second calling, this second, you know, being prayed for to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I'm, I'm spending so much time on this, listen to me is the saddest thing in the world for me to see as a pastor, and I see this too often, is Christians who are trying to live the Christian life and be the husband or be the wife or be the parent or be the follower of Jesus, that they're called to be in their own strength. And the reason that that's so sad is because they fail constantly. And what they are missing oftentimes is the realization of that dependency in their life on this baptism, this empowering of the Holy Spirit. That the Christian life, we say this all the time, is not about trying harder, it's about surrender. It's about being surrendered and yielded to and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So guys, we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us in order to give us power to serve Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon us to empower us to stand boldly for Jesus. We saw that in Acts chapter 4. It says that they prayed that God would give them boldness to stand. And then it says the next verse, and they were filled, empowered is the idea filled afresh again with the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to stand in the spiritual war. Paul said in Ephesians six ten, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And get this, those of you who are married, those of you who are parents, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be the husband and wife that God has called you to be. Why do I say that? Before Paul says one word to the husband or wife about their marriage, or those two people about being parents, before he says anything in chapter uh, 5, beginning in verse 22 about marriage and family, in verse 18, he says this, you need to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to realize your dependency upon the Holy Spirit for everything. So here in Samaria, the apostles were not content that these people were saved. They realized they need the power of the Holy Spirit for them to fulfill their calling. We're living in radical times. Persecution is coming. We need to go down there and pray for these guys to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now in this, we see the second way that God moves and leads his people. And the second way that we see here in Acts chapter 8 that God moves and leads his people is that you respond to a need. These guys see and hear there's a need in Samaria. We need to go down there. We need to go down there and pray for them. Peter and John are being led by God by responding to this need. Now understand something when I say this. Not every need is God's will for your life. And know this, there are way too many needs for you to respond to them all. So the question is, we see that this also involves a call. And at this particular time in the life of the church, the apostles knew that part of their calling was to pray, lay hands on people and pray that they might receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this brings up the question, well, how do I discover what my call is? And I think God can make that very, very clear to you in kind of a supernatural way through, you know, revelation. I don't have time to go into it, but I've shared, you know, with several times, you know, my calling into ministry was very supernatural. If you haven't heard the story, ask me, I'll tell you about it sometime. But, you know, God literally called me out of a room of 800 people and, um, and made it very clear that he was calling me into ministry and it was a radical life change. So that can happen. But I think, listen to me, I think most people would tell you this, the way that they discover their calling is through trial and error. I'll give you an example. After God called me into ministry, I wasn't sure like, okay, what kind of ministry is God calling me into? And so I just tended to respond to every need and opportunity that came up. Guys were going street witnessing. Hey, you want to go street witnessing? Yeah, sure, let's go. Now I'll tell you. In all my years of following Jesus, I have never once led anybody to Jesus street witnessing. Not once. I've almost been beat up a few times, but I've, I've never led anybody to Christ street witnessing. No connection whatsoever. I have friends, they go street witnessing, they lead people to Christ all the time. That has not been my experience at all. I have never seen any fruit in my life in doing jail ministry. I've gone into the jails, but just didn't click. I've never been arrested. I don't know. Maybe that's the issue. You know, I've never been in jail, you know, so they couldn't relate. Um, I signed up and got involved in convalescent home ministry. And I got to tell you, that was really, really sweet. Those people in convalescent home are, are, are wonderful. But, but I also say this, I, I didn't really have the patience you know, some of them aren't in their right mind. And so they're, you know, start a conversation and it goes off and, you know, and and doesn't come back for a long time. And I know some of you are saying, you're describing my husband right now, but, uh, (laughs) but I didn't have patience, you know, for that. But when I responded to a need to teach a Bible study on a high school campus, and I had never taught a Bible study before in my life. And suddenly it was like, boom, God just worked. And he moved and kids were coming and getting saved and it grew and it grew and it grew. And they told friends at another school and I went to that school. And then at the end of the school year, both those groups said, hey, let's keep meeting and got together. And I had no idea, but it was, it was evident that God was telling me that I had to seem to have a connection with high school students. When I moved down here from Orange County and I started a F fellowship of Christian athletes group at, at Rancho William Vista High School. And it ended up being the largest FCA group in all of San Diego County. And I have a sports background. And so it was kind of like, okay, I have this connection with high school students and I was an athlete, fellowship of Christian athletes. That seemed to, to work for me. When I first got hired here, though, they, 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 one of the things they assigned me to as being the youth pastor was to work with the junior hires. I didn't do well with the junior hires. I lasted about a year with that group and quickly found somebody to hand it over to, you know. I didn't do real good in children's ministry with fourth and fifth graders. I did that for a while. But with high school students, it clicked. It was like, okay, you know, but it came through trial and error. I ended up teaching at youth camps all over the the country for a, a season and it was God just moving and, and, and working and it was like, okay, this is my this is my calling and then I got too old and they quit inviting me to go to the youth camps anymore. And so right now in this season of my life, you know, I went out a call again, planted a church in Oregon. And God was you know, moving and working. I was there almost five years. And then God called us back here and to Vista and to be the lead pastor here. And this is the joy of my life is being able to pastor you know, all of you. I love this church with all of my heart. Thank you. But, you know, there's no need for that. But I appreciate that. But anyway. But, you know, my primary calling, I know, is, is to this church, to this body, to this city... But I also know in this season of my life, there are three areas where I know God uses me. And that's in, with men. So last night, I was up in the mountains and teaching at a men's conference for Jason Duff's church. And, and God just met us in a powerful way. Um, with marriages, my wife and I have a heart. And we feel like you know, God has used us um, in many, many places in ministering to marriages. And then with pastors, um, in our network of churches, I'm on a team that's called the Co- Care and Coaching Team. And and it's all about you know caring for and coaching other pastors. And so this week, I was up in Monterey meeting with this group, a part of this team. And we were doing some training to learn how to better encourage and minister to pastors. And I know right now in my season, this is my calling. This is what God has called me to. And so my point, though, in this is that I've discovered what my calling is through trial and error, through responding to needs, and oftentimes more than once. Our church, let's talk about our church for a second. Our church has a wide ministry, um, you know, really all over the world. And there have been many, many things that we've gotten involved in through the years. And But we've learned what is kind of, we, we believe our calling and our focus is in these three things. And we've learned this through trial and error, that that our focus outside of ministering to you guys and ministering to, you know, our city, our focus is this, is that we want to come alongside church planners. We want to encourage um, pastors and support pastors, and we want to build up pastors and missionaries. And so whenever needs come to us that deal with any of those things, it's like, okay, we're going to seriously pray about this because we know this is our calling. But this is my point. How do I discover, Pastor Rob, what my calling is? I want to encourage you, respond to a need. And as you do, God will show you if that is something that he is calling you to. Now listen, I would much rather see people respond to a need and discover that that wasn't their calling than to see people not respond at all because they're not sure. We have a tendency to overcomplicate things. You know, God prompts you see somebody, you know, that obviously isn't saved, and you feel a prompting in your heart to go and share Jesus with them, and then the mental gymnastics start. Is that really the Lord? That might be me. Maybe it's the devil. Listen, the devil is not gonna prompt you to talk to anybody about Jesus. He's not gonna do that, all right? relax you know the bible says that there's some who plant they plant the seed of the gospel there's others who water and there's some that bear the harvest and you might be, be like i've done a lot of planting but i've never got a harvest well, that's okay you started the whole process in that person's life you might see a need in the community or a need in our fellowship, or a need in, in, in your neighborhood. And again, the mental gymnastics are am I supposed to meet that need? You know, I don't feel gifted in that area. I, I don't know if that's really, you know, me. But but can I encourage you? Just respond. Respond. And imagine what would happen if all of us just started responding when we see a need. I'll tell you what would happen you might be surprised. You might be like, wow, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that God could have used me in this area. I'll give you an example of this. When I did youth ministry here, I did high school ministry for six years, and the guy who was by and far the, I'd say the most effective youth leader that we had was this guy named Jim Leach. Now I'm going to have them put up a picture here of Jim Leach. He's actually in heaven now. That's Jim. Okay. Some of you might remember Jim. Now, is there anything about him that looks like cool or, uh, you know, that, that would be the kind of thing that, that youth, youth guys would go like, I want to hang out with that guy, you know, no skinny jeans. No, you know, and that's actually a good picture of Jim. I'm just saying, but But this guy was a faithful usher in our church. And I remember, this is when we were, started when we were over at the little church off the of Hacienda, the little building. And I walked up to him one day and I said, Jim, I got something I want you to pray about. He said, what's that? I said, I want you to pray about me and one of our high school counselors. And he looked at me and said, are you out of your mind? I said, no, seriously. I, I just feel like maybe this is something God wants you to do, I you I just love how faithful you are. And and, uh, so he prayed. He came back to me and he said, I feel like God is calling me to do this, but i got a problem. Um, I smoke. I smoke cigarettes. He didn't smoke pot. He's like, I smoke cigarettes. I said, that's okay. Just don't smoke in front of the kids. This guy became so effective and you know where god used him the most in our youth group there were there was this group of kids that that just kind of didn't fit in with all the other kids and they became jim's group and he discipled many of them and many of them are walking with jesus today and serving the lord today because of his impact upon their life and the, the, the second thing about him he was a master at camping, and we would do these camp outs and I would just say, Jim, this is your baby. You, you just take the camp out, you know. And he would do that. But this is a great example of a guy who was like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, gosh, how the kids and, and, and then he became and he served with, with us for probably five years. And God used him in such an incredible way. So. Wanna learn what your calling is? Just start responding to needs and God will show you. All right, let's move on here. So Peter and John respond to this need. You can take that picture down. And and let's see what happens. Verse 17 says, And then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the apostles, the apostles hands, the Holy Spirit was given and he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So there, there seems to be some type of visible manifestation that the Holy Spirit has fallen on these people and Simon notices it. But I want you to notice how Peter deals with Simon. And this is another thing that we see here where this, this the disciples discovered in responding to this need is that there was a guy in Samaria that had the potential to cause great damage in the church. Philip doesn't recognize this. He seems to be oblivious. Um, He seems to lack discernment about Simon. He's just happy that Simon got saved and Simon's tagging along with him. But Peter sees the problem. So notice how Peter deals with him. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now I want you to note this. Gifts of God cannot be purchased. That's why they're called gifts. But Peter gets real strong with these guys. The, the Phillips translation translates this, your money perish with you like this, to hell with you and your money. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Peter said, but I'll tell you this, what he did say was strong. It was a strong rebuke that was meant to shake up Simon. But I also want you to note this, that Peter was not just content to tell Simon off. He was concerned about his soul. So he says in verse 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. I want you to notice that last phrase. I think it's very insightful. What's happening here is Peter has been given a word of knowledge about Simon. That all of Simon's problems and self-promotion and craving of attention were all connected to some past hurt in his life that made him bitter. And that's one of the ways that people deal with bitterness is they love to, to prop themselves up by pulling other people down. They deal with their bitterness and rejection they've experienced by trying extra hard to be liked by others. And the root of Simon's bitterness, this bitterness in his life, is what had him bound. And Peter understands this. And Peter understands that Jesus wants to set him free. So he says, repent, therefore. To repent means to do a 180. It means I'm going in this direction toward this sin and I'm going to turn away and I'm going to go in the opposite direction toward Jesus. So what Peter's telling Simon here, there's still hope for you. And that's the message for any of you here today that maybe you have messed up your life in sin and Jesus wants you to know there's still hope for you. He hasn't given up on you. There's still hope for you. If you are willing to repent, if you are willing to turn from your sin, to turn from the bitterness or whatever has you bound and turn to Jesus, he will set you free. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment, but let's answer the question here. Was Simon really saved through the ministry of Philip? The scholars are divided on this. Simon gives many evidences of conversion that we see in the text. There's at least an outward observation. Simon expressed belief in the preaching of Philip and was baptized. Simon received, or Philip received Simon as a kind of follower. Simon attended the meetings of the Christians. And for all those reasons, Philip regarded Simon as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. But others point to that statement that Peter makes in verse 21. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. They they point to that statement as evidence that Simon wasn't a true Christian, that he wasn't a true, didn't have sincere faith. Bible commentator James Montgomery Boyce makes this observation, though. He says this, listen closely. When Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry, it's interesting that he employs the same words that Jesus used for him. When Peter had objected in John 13 to Jesus washing his feet, Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The point being that those were also very strong words that Jesus said to Peter, who obviously was a believer, but just wasn't in the will of God at that moment. So the question is, was Simon a true believer or a fake believer? How many want the answer? Yes. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'll tell you this. If Simon was saved, it's a lesson for us to don't get sidetracked by signs and wonders and lose sight of Jesus. Don't pursue power. Pursue the person. That's what we learn. If he was saved, if Simon was not saved, and this was just an emotional reaction, like the seed sown amongst the stones, the lesson is this. Beware of those in the church who pursue power and position but really don't know Jesus. But I want to say this. It is possible to be in a church and come to church and even sing songs in the church and be a fake believer. To be a person who has never truly surrendered to Christ. And as a pastor, I run into people all the time who turn to Jesus for the wrong reasons. I've seen this too many times that I could even count. The husband who does something really, really stupid and blows up his marriage. and His wife is ready to leave him and he has a come to Jesus moment. And I tell him this every time. Do not come to Jesus in order to get your wife back. You come to Jesus because you know that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And if your wife comes back to you, that's just going to be icing on the cake. I see people who, you know, come to Jesus because they believe Jesus is going to help make their business more successful. That's not a reason to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus because you recognize I'm going to hell without him, right? But I see that. It happens a lot. So, was Simon a real believer, a fake believer? I'm not sure. But I want you to notice that Peter challenges him and then notice Simon's reaction. And then we're going to wrap this up. Verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. And so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem Preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. Here's what I want you to see. We don't know how Simon's story ended. We don't know if he turned to Jesus or not, if he really repented or not. But you can know how your story is going to end if you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today. If you repent. And you know what, it doesn't matter how bad your life has been, how much you've messed it up. And one of the things I love about this story is, you know, before Pete, before Philip went to Samaria, you know who went there first? Jesus did. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria, blows his disciples' minds. He meets a woman at a well, at a well outside the city in the middle of the day when no one else would come to the well. The reason why she was there at that time is because she was a woman with a sordid past. She'd had a five husbands, which was unheard of in that culture, to be married that many times and divorced. She had five husbands and currently was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And she meets Jesus at this well, well and he shares with her. He says, you know, whoever drinks of the water of this well will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst again. It, the, the, their heart, in other words, is going to be fully satisfied. And she's like, man, I want some of that water. Because she recognized there was a void in her heart. And Jesus was telling her, I'm the only one that can fill that void. And he went out of his way to come to Samaria to meet with that woman. And she gave her life to Jesus and became his follower. And she gets saved and goes and tells everybody about Jesus. And that can be your story today. If you repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today. We thank you, Lord, that you go out of your way to seek out sinners like us. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today that is in this room that has never given their life to you. Lord, I pray for those in this room who maybe professed you at one time, but have walked away from you. And God, I pray for those in this room who maybe have been playing church. They're that fake believer, and they know it in their hearts. Lord, I pray today that they would respond to you.